one of the greatest learning experiences of my life when I had the privilege of working with Dr. Stewart, who was the former director of Hope Biblical Counseling Center. She was brilliant. She was wise as she counseled people with the word of God. She basically told me, to forget all the nonsense I picked up in my master's in Christian counseling and taught me how to carefully handle the word of God. Let me say, without a doubt, Dr. Stewart is one of the best biblical counselors alive today. As I co-counseled with her, and would be astounded by her discernment of Scripture and how she would make every verse just jump right off the page and speak right to the counselee that she was ministering to. Something special. There's something unique about learning from greatness, about learning from a mature believer in Christ Jesus. Well, this morning, the disciples are in the midst of greatness. They aren't learning from a a mature believer per se, but God himself. They're watching Christ Jesus pray to his Father. They're listening to God the Son talking to God the Father. And if we remember for the past three chapters in John, Jesus has been preaching and teaching the disciples. He has been preparing them for the future. And in John 17, Christ changes gears. He transitions as he begins to pray. Someone once said the best and fullest sermons ever preached was followed by the best of prayers. And this is exactly what we see in Christ. He goes from teaching words of life to the disciples to praying deep truths to his Father. Christ prays like no one else has ever prayed before. He prays with such authority, with such humility, with perfect motives every second. He prays like no one else because he knows the Father like no one else. And the disciples are there. They witness this holy moment. I mean, can you imagine listening to God pray to God? The disciples get a glimpse of what occurred when Jesus went up on the mountain to commune with his father. The disciples get a taste of how the Trinity communicated with each other before the foundations of the earth. So let's open our Bibles to John 17. John 17, verses 1 and 2. John 17, verses 1 and 2. And I've entitled this message, The Real Lord's Prayer. And I'm calling this sermon the real Lord's Prayer because Christ is praying. Usually Matthew 6 is referred to as the Lord's Prayer where Jesus is teaching the disciples how to pray. But here in John 17, Jesus doesn't teach on prayer, but he prays. 
and all of the heavenly host. All the angels are listening intently to see what the Son of God will say to his Father. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer now. Holy Father, we praise you. We thank you for your word that we continue to just dive into and your spirit takes us deeper. Help the riches of your word to play itself out in our daily actions by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that we, for the hope that you've given us in Christ Jesus. In him we pray, amen. So John 17, 1 starts by this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. So Jesus looks up to heaven and prays, which reveals Christ's reverence and humility to his Father. This shows us that gestures or postures or how we pray isn't meaningless. It makes some difference how we come to the Father. It makes some difference how do we come to the throne of grace. We may be broken over our sins so we fall on our knees. Or maybe we lift our hands in praise to God in adoration as we speak of his greatness, of his attributes. Or maybe we pray to God during our daily morning exercise as we present our requests to him. So how we pray, what postures we take is of some value. But the real importance is found and is what is going on. What is going on on the inside? Does our posture reflect our hearts? John Calvin, the great reformer, once said this, if we desire to imitate Christ in prayer, we must make sure our outward gestures do not express more than what is in our mind. John Calvin is saying that our outward expressions of prayer shouldn't supersede our inward desire to pray. In other words, may our outward postures be motivated from our inward passions to Christ, in worship to Christ. So if we bow our head or kneel, or raise our hands, or even lay prostrate on the floor like Martin Luther used to do. Let it be motivated from a heart of praise to Christ, amen? But let's go back to our section, John 17, 1. And it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So Jesus says, glorify your son. In other words, honor your son. Lift up your son. The question is, how will God honor Christ? How is the Father going to glorify Jesus? Well, we get a hint that Jesus' justification isn't what we would expect as Christ says this. Glorify your son that... The Son may glorify you. Jesus says his glorification will glorify the Father. Christ isn't trying to selfishly glorify himself. He isn't trying to get the best for himself. He isn't trying to just benefit himself. I mean, if that was the case, he wouldn't have come to earth in the first place, right? 
Christ says his glory will ultimately glorify the Father. But we get another clue of Christ's glorification when Christ says, Father, the hour has come. Christ is saying the moment has arrived. Everything I have done up to this point led to what is about to take place. In other words, his purpose for coming to earth is about to come to fruition. And this purpose will glorify himself and the Father. So what was Christ's purpose? What was his reason for coming to earth? Well, Acts 2.23 tells us. Acts 2.23, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he tells the crowd what the plan of God was from the beginning. He says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So here we see that the plan was for Christ to be crucified. The plan was for Jesus to die. Jesus was born to die. Crucifixion was the definite. It was the deliberate. It was the predetermined. It was the prearranged plan of the Father from the beginning that would be walked out by Christ. That means the plan that glorified the Father and the Son was the crucifixion of Christ. The Son glorified the Father by obeying his plan while the Son was glorified in the fact that he glorified the Father. We can see that God's plan that glorified the Son and the Father also benefited us, amen? I mean, the Father's plan was about redeeming his people back to him. I wonder if we realize the significance of the cross, the significance of the predetermined plan by the Father from the beginning. This leads to point number one. The plan of the, of the cross absorbed the Father's wrath. Point number one says the plan of the cross absorbed the Father's wrath. But it's ironic that many today say just the opposite. They don't talk about being under the wrath of God. Instead, they say humanity as a whole are all children of God. We're all going to heaven because we're all so good. Well, I would suggest if we were all children of God going to heaven, then why did God send Christ to earth in the first place? I mean, why would Christ come to save us? Why would God sacrifice his son if we were already good, if we were already children of God already headed to heaven? This is where it's so important that we submit ourselves to the Bible to God's word, instead of living by our own understanding. Proverbs 21, 2 says, All a man's ways seem right to him. All a man's ways seem innocent to them. God's word says we already think we know the right answers. We already think we know the right way to go. I mean, who needs a GPS or a map when I already know the right way to go? Can I get an amen from the husbands? 
I mean, we don't need any help. We don't need to ask anyone for directions because husbands are like homing pigeons. We never get lost. But Scripture says that going our own way spiritually isn't wise. Proverbs 28, 26 says, We are fools if we trust in our own ways. So instead of coming up with our own truths, coming up with our own theories, we rely on God's word, which says instead of everyone being children of God, Ephesians 2 gives us a reality check of who we were before we came to Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, they should be on the screen. It's behind us. And it's Paul the Apostle talking to the church at Ephesus, and he says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." So we find out that in general, humanity is not good. Instead, we see that we were dead spiritually. We were separated from God. Instead of children of God, we see that we were children of Satan. And instead of being controlled by God, we see that we were controlled by our sinful nature, Ephesians says. I know this isn't very good for our self-esteem, but that's okay because God wants us to give up on self altogether anyway. And depend on Christ. To live for Christ. But going back to Ephesians 2, 3, which says that we were by nature children of wrath. The question is, whose wrath were we under? The answer, of course, is God's wrath. The question is, why? Why do we start under God's wrath before we follow Christ? Well, let's think about this for a moment. Scripture says everything we did before we were a believer was tainted with sin. Even our good works, our good deeds weren't done for God's glory. And God is just, and that means he can't overlook or ignore sin. Someone has to be punished. I mean, if God lets us off the hook for our sin without someone paying the penalty, then we would conclude that God is unjust. I mean, what would we think of a judge that said, I know you killed all those people. You're guilty, and for that you deserve life in prison or even death. But I'm feeling pretty good today. I'm feeling really good. I got a good night's rest, so I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to drop all the charges and allow you to be set free today. I mean, if that happened, we would conclude that this is a bad judge because he is making an unfair decision. He isn't about justice or doing what's right. And yet, this is how many expect God to treat them on the day of judgment day. God can just look over my sin because I've done more good deeds than bad deeds, right? Or wrong deeds. I mean, how would that work today. Judge, 
you should let me go free. I am guilty of the crimes, but I've helped many people. I've helped in soup kitchens. The reality is our good deeds don't negate our, our bad deeds even on this side of heaven. God is just. He is more just than any earthly judge. He's perfect. He can't tolerate sin. He can't overlook sin. God needed a perfect sacrifice. That's that would take away our sin. That's why Ephesians 2.3 says that every person is naturally under the wrath of God. The cross is at the pinnacle of Christianity because God poured out his fury and his wrath on Christ instead of us. Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God. The cross absorbed the Father's wrath. Romans 5, 9 says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? I wonder if we understand the significance of the Father's plan to send his Son to the cross. I wonder if we realize what would have happened with humanity if Christ hadn't come in the first place. I wonder if we see the only way to God is through Christ Jesus. Instead of wrath this morning, God offers us grace. Grace to all who repent and trust in Christ as their one and only Lord and Savior. But the question is why? Why would the Father create this elaborate plan to save those who believe in Christ? As we see in our passages again in John 17, verses 1 and 2, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since, verse 2, you have been given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So Jesus says in verse 2 that the Father gave the Son authority over all humanity so that he could give eternal life to all whom the Father gave him. So again, why would God save any of us? Why would God the Father and the Son create this amazing plan for our justification, for our salvation? I mean, Scripture has already concluded that we all started out as a bunch of scoundrels, right? Corrupt, evil, wicked without Christ. As Romans 3 says, none is righteous, not no, not one. All have gone their own way. No one seeks after God. Why would God want to redeem any of us? Why would God want to save you and me? Well, a very familiar verse tells us. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And this leads to point number two. The cross was motivated from a heart of love. The cross was motivated from a heart of love. We don't have to wonder or worry about what God thinks about us. We don't have to work and work and work and hope God will finally approve of us. Some of us this morning 
think if I can just do this or do that, then God will finally accept me. Or if I can just stop this and start doing that, then God will finally consider me his child. But church, this is dangerous. This is wrong thinking. This is what you call heresy. Because what we are doing is making our actions, our behaviors, the focus. We are making ourselves the focus instead of Christ Jesus. In essence, what we are saying is that our own efforts are the Savior instead of Christ being the Savior. This is a disorder known as Phariseeism. You've probably heard about it. I mean, I didn't just make this up right now. But it is a disorder that makes salvation about us instead of Christ. This leads to all sorts of problems like selfishness, like living in extreme fear and being full of pride. We become the center of all things instead of recognizing Christ is the center of all things. That's why legalism is so dangerous. It puts the focus on us. But let's get back on topic where we were saying that the cross was proof of God's love for us. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Even while we were dead in our sins, God's great love was the motivations. God's great love was the reason why God saved us. Let's just stop and think about that for a moment. We expect our parents, our grandparents, our spouse, our children to love us, but we are talking about God, the creator of the universe. The creator of all things, the sovereign Lord, the almighty king, loves us. He loves you and he loves me. As Romans says, with a great, great love. Do you know this great love of God this morning? It's a love that Paul says we can't even fully comprehend or understand it in Ephesians 3. God's love would be comparable to looking out in the ocean where the water seems to go on and on for miles. And yet, God's love is greater than that. It never ends. I mean, think about it. God's love is continuous because God's love is eternal, right? First, that's why 1 Corinthians 13.3 says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is... Love. Why is love greater than hope? Why is love greater than faith? Because love is eternal. While hope and faith are temporal, they are temporary. Love will continue on in heaven, while faith and hope will be useless for us. They will no longer be needed because we will be in the presence of Almighty God for eternity. That means when we know God's love, we are getting a foretaste of eternity. When we know God's love, we are getting a glimpse of the next life. When we know God's love, we are experiencing something otherworldly. 
I wonder if we know the love of God this morning. If we are relishing in our relationship with Christ. But part of knowing this love is walking in it as well. This love affects how we live our lives. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Obey my what? Commandments. Christ says God's love motivates us to turn from self and live for Christ. Or to say it another way, the fruit of God's love in our life is revealed in our obedience. In the ways we follow God's word. I wonder how well we are following God's word. What about in our marriage? Is our marriage centered on Christ? Are we living in our God-given roles that we see in Scripture? Husbands, are we serving and leading our wives in love? Wives, are we respecting, submitting, and honoring our husbands? What about parents? Are we training our children to know Christ? Are we spending time with our children, teaching them to glorify our sovereign God? Are we praying with them, filling their minds with God's truth? Because I can guarantee if we're not, the world is. What about those of us who are retired? Are we using our time to glorify God? Are we sharing Christ with the people that we rub shoulders with daily? Are we serving in the church? If we are retired, we are called to live for Christ. I mean, we don't retire from being a Christian, right? How we live our lives reveals if we truly love Christ. Well, this morning we have just scratched the surface on Christ's prayer to his Father as we have been mostly talking about the content of his prayer, but I want to, us to just take a step back with the time we have and consider the fact that Christ prayed to his Father. And he prayed often. I mean, this was a normal practice for Christ. The question is, are we praying? Prayer is one of God's greatest gifts to the believer. And yet it seems in 2016... Prayer is probably the most neglected in our time. You know we're in trouble when pastors are challenging their people to spend five minutes a day in prayer. I mean, I know, we know on many occasions that Christ prayed all night. And now we have the gumption, the audacity to think we can arrogantly live the Christian life without praying. Jesus says in John 5, 19, I can do nothing on my own. I can do nothing on my own. Jesus depended wholly and fully on the Father. Whatever the Father said to do, Christ obeyed. Christ followed the Father every step of his life, every step of the way. Paul Miller in his great book on prayer says this, if you know that you, like Christ, can't do life on your own, then prayer makes all the sense. Or Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first hours in prayer. 
Let me read that again. I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And this leads to point number three. Prayer reveals our dependence on God. Prayer simply reveals our dependence on God. And I know I've made this point before, but I thought it would be a good reminder that without prayer, we aren't depending on God. We're depending on ourselves. A prayerless life is a godless life. A prayer-filled life is a prayer, is a God-filled life. Paul tells us, to pray for all things. Pray on all occasions. Pray without ceasing. That means every day, every step, every action, every decision should be bathed and saturated in prayer. When is the last time we set some time aside and just prayed? Talk to our Father. It's always good to pray when we're at work or when we're going through our daily routines, but there's just something to be said to when we give God our undivided attention, when we set everything aside, when we stop our own agendas and just pray. That means we get alone somewhere, we go into our bedroom or our closet, or we go outside and we just talk to our Father. We aren't just praying on the fly. We aren't, we, we aren't on our own agendas adding prayer to our already busy life. But we stop everything and make God the number one agenda. Amen? But the next question is, what should motivate us to pray? What should motivate us to pray as believers? When we look at John 17, we get a glimpse of, on how to pray. But what should be the main reason why we should pray? I mean, we could read many books on prayer that tells us all the benefits, right? Many say that you need to pray because it unlocks the secrets of life. Or you need to pray because you'll receive blessings from heaven. Or you need to pray because you need to be protected from the evil one. Or you need to pray to have a God-centered marriage. Or you need to pray to mortify our sin, as the Puritan John Owen would say which we would agree with all the above reasons on why we should pray. But praying because of what we get out of praying shouldn't be the main reason why we pray. It's sad how we try to make everything about us. Even prayer. I want to pray more so I can unleash the power of God in my life. I want to pray more so I can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. I want to pray more so I can get a promotion or find the right spouse or have godly children. And again, these are good reasons why we should pray. But the benefits of prayer can't be our main purpose of why we are praying. If our purpose in prayer, if our main motivation in prayer is to get something from God, if we pray mostly for the benefits, and I ask you, church, who are we praying for? The answer is self. Prayer has become an inward-focused activity instead of an outward praise to our God. And this leads to point number four. Prayer is the opportunity to spend time with your Father. Prayer is the opportunity to spend time with your Father. I love those times growing up when my father and I would 
get some time alone. It would usually be on the way to a soccer or basketball game where he would usually give me a pep talk of some sort, but it would lead to deeper, more personal conversations. But overall, I must admit, my father was very busy. He worked 10 to 24 hours a day. So I didn't get a lot of time with him growing up. And yet, church, our heavenly father always has time for us. He's ready and willing to give us his undivided attention. Prayer gives us opportunity to commune with the God of the universe. Prayer reveals our relationship with God, our intimacy with God. Prayer is the gauge that shows how healthy our relationship with God really is. I pray that we really pray not so much for ourselves, but because we want to just spend time with our Father. We want to be in his presence and just enjoy his fellowship. But again, the fellowship with the Father, we must start in prayer. We must begin to pray. I encourage us this week to set some time aside, not five minutes, more like 30 minutes, And God will work on our hearts in the process as we share our hearts with God. God is not so much in the the business of wanting to change the busyness of our schedules, of our lives, but he is focused on transforming the busyness of our hearts. May our hearts be single-minded on Christ May our prayer life reveal we are passionate about Christ, that we want to praise our sovereign God. But I want to end this morning by sharing a prayer by Augustine, who lived in the 300s, and this is what he said. Look upon us, O Lord, and let all the darkness of our souls vanish before the beams of thy brightness. Fill us with holy love and open to us the treasures of thy wisdom. Fill us with thy holy love. All our desire is known unto thee. Therefore, perfect and thou hast begun, and what thy spirit has awakened us to ask in prayer. We seek thy face. Turn thy face unto us and show us thy glory. Then shall our longing be satisfied, and our peace shall be perfect. Amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, what a chapter to stumble upon. What a chapter to be led to. What a series to be able to walk into a chapter that talks about prayer. Such a foreign concept to many these days. Help us to be experts in prayer. Help us to just really run to you in prayer. Not because we think it's so powerful to pray, but that we want to be with our Father. That we want to be in your presence, and we want to give you all the glory. And yes, secondarily, we do receive so much from prayer. Help us to keep the right mentality as we pray to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that works in us. Help us as a church to glorify you today as we leave. In Christ's name, amen.